reading is taken from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood around them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you would come and minister to us, that is, serve us and help us. You are a generous God. We do not need to pry open your cheap fingers or stingy fingers. They are open to us. They have been opened wide in your Son. So help us now to have grace to receive all that you intend for us. Bring about the certainty of faith, which is something only the Holy Spirit can do. So give us the gift of belief and faith today. Answer our questions. Move us in one direction towards you. Help us all, both my mouth and your people's ears and hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me just give you a preview of where we're going from here. As a church, next week we are going to launch into a new sermon series on the resurrection. And that will take us through Easter and beyond as we consider the certainty of the resurrection and what it means to believe in life after death and the implications for what it has for life before death. I am beyond excited for that and I think it's going to be a great series for us as a church to wade in that for some time. Today then we are wrapping up and finishing a series that we called Unbelievable as we were looking at some of the common objections and obstacles and doubts that folks have with Christianity, things about Christianity that make the faith hard to believe in. If you want to remember with me for a moment of some of the questions we considered, these weren't sort of softballs. These were coming at us at 90 miles an hour. Questions like, how can there be only one true religion? How can a loving God send people to hell? If there is a good God, how can there be so much evil and suffering in the world? Isn't the church responsible for so much injustice? Aren't Christians intolerant? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? And one after another after another, we tried to do our best in addressing each of these questions and each of these doubts about the Christian faith. So what we want to do today is we want to step back from the whole thing and ask a larger question, which is, what are we to do with doubts in general? Or personally for you, what should I do with my doubts? What should I do with my doubts? And the reality is that at some point, all of us will come across doubt, wrestle with personal doubt, struggle through doubt. If you've ever been there, you know that it can be a very unnerving, very even frightening, very even scary experience to go through doubt. 
It can feel like the ground beneath you is trembling and crumbling, and that which you stood on and assumed to be true, which you believed with certainty, starts to shake and tremor, and you're not really sure anymore what you're standing on or what your life is based on. It can be a very unnerving thing to go through doubt. And that can be true whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. Doubt, none of us are immune from doubt. If you're not a Christian, I spoke with a woman here who, after one of our services, told me that Jesus and the gospel and this message seemed compelling to her, but to receive it, to accept it, would mean that she would have to throw away all that she thought about Jesus till that point. That he could no longer be just a really good guy or a moral teacher, or a righteous man, if these claims were true, everything she thought about her life to that point would have been wrong, and that kind of doubt about her worldview paralyzed. But certainly, it is not just a not-Christian or a non-Christian. We who are believers or Christians are not immune from doubt. So let me, let me tell you that for me personally. Eight weeks ago, I was sitting in our office across the way as we were getting ready to start this series. And I had done as much prep as my little mind could handle. I had read every skeptic, every atheist, every agnostic, every doubter, and all their arguments that I could fit into my mind. There is an ocean's worth of literature. But whatever little pond I could fit here, I had read as much as I could. And unbeknownst to me, perhaps even unconsciously, the weight of all the arguments and the questions and the skepticism and the doubt began to weigh heavily on my heart. So I'm sitting in the office just eight weeks ago, and I'm not a very emotional person. I begin weeping. Because the weight of it all settled down to the point that now, if I'm honest, I start saying, what if they're right? What if I'm talking and no one's out there? Right? What if, what if there's nothing else except what you see? Have you ever been there? Right? If you've been there, you know what a despairing thing that is. To walk through this fog in what you thought was bright sunlight. If you've ever been there, you know how difficult that can be. And, and maybe for you, if you've ever gotten there, it is some kind of cerebral intellectual question. Maybe there's some question, one of these, these fastballs that are thrown against Christianity and you haven't really teased out the answer and the questions begin to bother and doubt begins to creep into your heart. Maybe for some of you, it's not cerebral at all. You're not thinking philosophically. You don't have a problem with the big questions that big books are written about. For you, maybe it's driven by circumstance. It's just that the storms of life seem to be pounding. And if you're honest, if you let your soul speak, it would be screaming out, Where are you, God? And if there is a God, what manner of God lets this happen in the life of a person like me? And maybe doubt begins to come. And, and if you're honest, it can feel like the ground you're standing on is crumbling and falling beneath you. And if you're here and you're a Christian, let me talk to you for a second. We Christians, we're not particularly good at dealing with doubt. We don't handle doubt particularly well. For example, some of us, if you were raised around Christianity or in the Christian church, 
you were probably taught very, very early on, when you doubt, there's one simple principle. Stop it. Right? Stop that. Don't doubt. So don't ask the questions. Just stop it. And so what you do is implicit you, implicitly you learn to sweep those questions under a rug. And you hide them or you ignore them or you pretend they're not there. And what results is this very weak, anemic faith that the first hard wind of life that comes by seems to crumble it all together. Or you meet a very engaging, thoughtful non-believer or atheist or skeptic who challenges your faith and you feel like you have nothing that you're standing on. Or worse, we Christians tend to be a bit judgmental towards doubt. We know what the right answer is. Start believing, and so we spout that out to those who doubt. It's like the story of Job's friends. If you've read the story of Job in the Bible, here's this man who's suffering, and his friends come by, and each of them provides some kind of spiritual diagnosis of why this is happening. And they each go, look, this awful thing is in your life. It must be some kind of sin. What's going on? Just tell us so that you can get fixed. And so when we deal with doubt, we too feel like we've got to spiritually diagnose this thing and, and tell you what's wrong so that you can snap out of it and get right. And yet I was struck this week by a verse in the Bible that I didn't know was there. Maybe had read it, just never noticed it before. A simple verse from Jude, a book way back in the back of the Bible. It's just one verse, seven words long. It says this, and have mercy on those who doubt. I hadn't seen that before. And have mercy on those who doubt. That is that the Bible, listen, is not a soft book. No, it comes hard at unbelief. And it'll call out unbelief and rebuke unbelief. But at the same time, the Bible seems to anticipate that there will be times among God's people where doubt will come. And when that comes... We ought to be the kind of loving and merciful community that has mercy on those who doubt. The kind of community, hear me, that has mercy on those who doubt. So here's the thing. Doubt is going to come. It's going to come at some point, perhaps for you personally. Or maybe it's going to come for your spouse whose faith feels like it's falling apart and you're not sure how to show them mercy as they doubt. Or maybe it's going to come for your children. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. But I know, Lord willing, my three-year-old will one day be a 13-year-old and a 23-year-old. My six-year-old will be a 16-year-old and a 26-year-old. And when the day comes, I know there's going to be a time when they go, is this all real? Mom and Dad brought me here every Sunday. Is this all real? Was Jesus really my God or Dad's boss? They're going to ask. And I, I can imagine when the day comes, they're too young now, or if you're a parent, you're there maybe now already. You, you probably instinctively so badly want to grab that for your child and bear it if you could on yourself rather than watch them wander. And yet see, God seems content to let them wander. So how are we going to navigate doubt or be a people that show mercy on those who doubt? What I want to do is just give you three passages from the Gospels, three encounters that Jesus has with some deserters and doubters, and through these three scenes, as Jesus engages some doubters, it might give us some principles for how we might navigate doubt, 
and how we might have compassion and mercy on those who doubt. Right? Three scenes of Jesus with some folks in the Gospels, and from them perhaps three thoughts that might help us navigate the fog of doubt. Here's the first one. The first principle, and we won't spend much time here, is simply this, that behind doubt is alternative belief. Behind all doubt is alternative belief. In John chapter 6, if you want to turn there, you can turn there and look for a moment. In John chapter 6, Jesus is giving to his disciples and this massive crowd that's come around him some very difficult teaching. The context there is Jesus has made this miracle of bread and fed the people and he's used that to go into a lengthy discourse about how he's the real bread. Bread come from heaven. And the people are hearing this and they start grumbling. What do you mean he's come from heaven? We know who his parents are. What is this talk of coming from heaven? They can't put it together. But he follows that up with even more outrageous claims. He says things outlandish to our ears. He says things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood... You can't have part in the life to come. I mean, that is so shocking, so over the top. They don't know what to make of what he's saying. That in John 6, we hear that some of the folks who had followed Jesus to that point no longer follow. They desert. They leave. In fact, John 6, verse 60 says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Six verses later. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Right? So they go, who can accept this teaching of his? And they stopped following. His disciples stopped following him. So then Jesus turns, verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? So he's got all these people that have been following him for some time. They come across this thing that they can't figure out in their mind. They don't know what the answer is. And so they leave. And so Jesus turns to his chosen 12 and says, do you want to go also? And listen to how one of them responds. This is Simon Peter, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I want you to just consider for one moment what Peter says. Peter says, look, Jesus, we've come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. And moreover, no matter how hard this thing is that you're saying, and no matter how much we can't seem to figure it out, and no matter how much I don't know the answers to the guys who are walking away, and I can't seem to answer their questions... Where else are we supposed to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? And here's all I want you to see from that. Peter is saying that leaving Jesus means not stepping into some kind of vacuum or a neutral place, but rather into an alternative belief. He's saying if we leave you, it's not like we're just going into this middle empty space. It's that we have to embrace something else. And where else are we supposed to go? The behind leaving Jesus is another master or an alternative rabbi or in this case an alternative worldview and belief. All I'm trying to highlight here for just a brief moment is what we said at the very onset of the series. Which is please know that we all have beliefs. That we all live by certain faith assumptions. That we all have certain things that we're building our lives on. 
unprovable faith beliefs. We've all got them, and none of us are immune from them. If, for example, you don't believe in a God, who, like we talked about this series, who would be loving and send people to hell, you don't believe in God because of that. You've got doubt because how can there be one true religion? If you've got any of those doubts against Christianity, you need to know that behind those doubts are very strong beliefs about what you think God then is like. It's not an empty space behind the doubt. It rather is some strong opinions about what God is like. You can't reject Christianity without some alternative strong beliefs in which you stand. So beneath the doubts, behind the doubts, are some strong assumptions, unprovable assumptions, not scientifically testable assumptions. So please, again, hear with me as we wrap the series up. Don't think that this conversation is one where doubt is built on rationale and rational thought and faith is built on superstition. This is not a conversation of faith versus reason. This is a conversation of faith versus faith. Beliefs versus beliefs. It's beliefs versus alternative beliefs. If you don't believe in A, it is because you believe in B. And Peter recognized, if I'm not going to be with A, I must be with B. Behind your doubt is some belief. And all I'm saying here, is that if you're going to hold Christianity to the light and examine it with careful scrutiny, you owe it to yourself to do the same thing with the alternative beliefs by which you're living your life and to see, do those hold? You owe it to yourself before rejecting Christianity under the light of careful scrutiny to at least examine the doubt and the beliefs behind the doubt and to see if they too hold under scrutiny. We're all banking on something. The only question is, what are we banking on? Here's the second principle, and the second scene where Jesus encounters some doubt. And, and the principle is this. The most important question when you're facing doubt is not the measure of your faith, but the object of your faith. Hear that again with me, because that's important. When you're engaging doubt, the most important question is not the measure of your faith, but the object of your faith. If you tell me you're in doubt, my first question for you should not be how strong or weak is your faith right now, but what is your faith in? <coughs> Let me show you a scene so that you see that. This is Mark chapter 9. Again, if you turn to Mark 9, you'll see it. Jesus is coming down this mountain with three of his disciples. And they've seen this vision of Jesus. The Bible calls it the transfiguration. And he steps down from the mountain and he sees that his disciples and some of the scribes, which are the religious leaders of their day, are in sort of a squabble. There's sort of a fight that's broken out. And so Jesus steps into the midst of this crowd and he asks them, what is going on? And so in the midst of all the noise, a desperate father pipes up. And he explains to Jesus, I have a son who's possessed. And I've brought him to your disciples, hoping they could do something and heal him. They have not been able to. Jesus looks at the whole crowd, his disciples included, and says, You faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? And then he cuts through straight to the father, and he has asked him about the condition. He says, How long has this been going on? And the father says, It's been going on from childhood. This thing is trying to kill him. And then listen to his request. This is Mark 9, verse 22. His father says, 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Hear that again. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, here's what I want you to hear about his request. Think about this for a second. Earlier in the Gospels, Mark tells us about a leper that came to Jesus and made a very similar request. This man's covered in leprosy. He comes to Jesus and he says, If you are willing, you can make me clean. In the man's mind, there is no doubt about whether Jesus can. He's just not sure if Jesus will. Does that make sense? If you are willing, you can make me clean. So almost in a, in a sign of respect, a bit of politeness, he comes and says, I don't want to presume on whether or not you will. If you are willing, though, I know you can make me clean. And some of us would say, if you're a believer and you're praying, for example, for someone to be healed, I think a lot of us would say, we don't have any doubt that Jesus can. We're just not always sure if he will. Right? If I come to someone with this terminal illness, I, I honestly have no doubts about whether God can. I'm just not sure if he will. That's the leper. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And Mark is saying, but that's not this man's question. In Mark 9, the father comes and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. You see, he had brought the son to the disciples. They weren't able to heal him. So he's not particularly sure that Jesus can either. And Mark is highlighting, do you see how small and weak this man's faith is? His question is not even just, will Jesus do it? But can Jesus do it? He's not just asking, I'm not sure about Jesus' willingness. He's asking, I'm not sure about Jesus' ability." It's not whether you will do it. I'm not even sure if you can. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Mark is trying to highlight for all of us, this man's faith is, is really weak and really small. I mean, a, a mustard seed is like a mountain for this man's faith. It's weak. In fact, Jesus is almost surprised by the weakness of his faith so that Jesus responds back with a rebuke. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to him, If you can, exclamation point. Don't miss that. If you can, anything, all things are possible for the one who believes. It's almost like Jesus is taken back by this man saying, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man hears that and now he's putting things together and he's saying, My son's healing, you're saying, is dependent then on my level of belief. And as he looks inward, he says, then, then there's bankruptcy in here. And he makes this beautiful, stunning confession. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is a wonderful prayer to pray in doubt. The man saying, if you're telling me this is about faith and all things are possible for the one who believes, I'm telling you, Jesus, I believe but help my unbelief. He's almost saying, I've got this grain of faith, but around it is this mountain of doubt. I've got a little bit of faith, but you've got to help my unbelief. And friends, here's the glorious truth then. What matters is not the measure of your faith, but the object of your faith. What matters is not how weak or strong your faith is right now in the midst of doubt, but who your faith is in. This man's faith was frail. 
but it was in a strong Savior. And that makes all the difference in the world. One preacher said it like this. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're being chased by a wild beast. A bear is right behind you. It happens in Philadelphia all the time. Right? You're at the edge of a cliff, and you look down, and there's three branches beneath you. Now, this thing is barreling down, so you have no choice but to jump. At that point, it does not matter if you jump with the courage and might and valor of a Navy SEAL. Or if you just little hop on over like the biggest wimp and wuss in the world. It matters not at all. What does matter is which branch you fall on. Because you could jump with all the gusto and might and valor and courage in the world onto the wrong branch and it will not hold. But you could hop with the greatest timidity and frightness and fearfulness and, and frailty and weakness. But if you land onto the right branch, it will hold. What matters is not the measure of your faith, but the object of your faith. Because if you grab onto the right one, and we're all grabbing onto something, because we've all got beliefs. The question is, is what you're holding onto, is it able to hold? It's like a pastor named Tim Keller said about, if you remember the story of the people of Israel, and I may have shared this before, walking through the Red Sea. Remember, Moses is leading this people out of slavery. And so the sea parts, they're walking on dry land, and you can picture a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. And Keller says, you can imagine that there is going to be some in that gathering that's walking across, and they're just strutting Oh, this is awesome. Look at Yahweh. He's delivered us. Pharaoh's back there. He's never going to touch us again. We're going to the promised land. This ground beneath me is sure and certain. But you can also imagine that there's going to be a bunch in that group going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This thing is going to collapse on my head. I'm going to die. And he's taking one step after another in the weakest, frailest faith. You know what the glorious thing is at the end? They're both on the other side of the shore, looking back, seeing the salvation of the Lord. What matters is not the measure of your faith. How strong or weak your faith is right now in the midst of doubt, but what is the object of your faith? Is it in Jesus? Then the branch will hold. Because the weakest faith in Jesus is more sustaining than the strongest faith in anything else. We're all going to leap. Please don't think you don't leap. Because behind every doubt is an alternative belief. We're all going to leap. The only question is, what are you leaping on and can that branch hold? Amen. So if you're telling us, telling this community that is seeking to be merciful to those who doubt, our first question for you will not be how strong or weak your faith is right now, but is it in Jesus? If it's weak and in Jesus, it'll hold. Yes, the Lord wants us to have strong faith. And yes, the Lord will bring about trials and tests particularly for that reason, to strengthen and purify our faith. But our first question is, what is your faith in? Because if it's in Jesus, it'll hold. Let me give you this third and final principle to navigate through doubt and one more scene that Jesus has with a doubter. Here's the principle. The Lord does want us to have strong faith and Ironically, sometimes doubt is the path to strong faith. Ironically, sometimes doubt itself is the very path 
too strong faith. So let me show you the most famous story of doubt in all the Bible. Right? This is John 20, where doubting Thomas. John 20 is Jesus encountering his disciples. And in John 20, here's what happens. Jesus has died. On the third day, he rose again. Something we'll spend a season considering together next week. On that third day, he rose again. He appears to his disciples because nobody believes. Doubting Thomas gets a bad name, but nobody believes. It's all the apostles who doubt it. But Jesus shows up to them, appears so that they have no more questions left, except Thomas is not there. And so the disciples do what you'd imagine they do. They go back to their buddy and they go, we've seen the Lord. He has risen from the dead. He really is alive. We've seen him. But listen to what Thomas says. This is John 20, verse 25. Winston read it for us. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Hear that again. Because Thomas isn't just saying, I need a general, vague uh, appearance of Jesus. He's got very specific demands of what the proofs are that he wants. It's not just, I want to see Jesus. No, no, no. I want to see the mark. I want to put my finger in the mark of the nail. I want to put my hand in his side where he was pierced. Unless those three come together, I will never believe. It's as if Thomas is committed to unbelief. And he's got a very high bar for what would ever move him from unbelief. I mean, you talk about doubt. This is serious, weighty doubt. And if you could picture the next day and the day after that and and eight days later, you can imagine these brothers who are telling him, we saw him, I'm telling you we saw him. And how many times did he probably say, I don't care, I will never believe. But the text goes on to say, eight days later, they're in a locked room And Jesus shows up again. And of course, he says, peace be with you, because they're probably all jumping out of their skin. Peace be with you, and he goes right at Thomas. No wasting time, he goes straight for Thomas. Here's what I love, friends. He doesn't reject Thomas. He doesn't condemn Thomas. He doesn't say to the others, what is this unbelieving doubter doing here? He moves straight to Thomas, and listen to what he says in John 20, verse 27. Thomas... Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You talk about showing mercy to those who doubt. I mean, how humble does the Lord Jesus himself, risen from the dead, have to be to come into the room and say, Thomas, what was it? You had three things? Okay, fine. You wanted to see? Here, see. You wanted to put your finger in? Put your finger in. What was it? My side? You want to touch my side? Here you go, Thomas. Reach out your hand. I mean, mercy on those who doubt. Every one of his requests, here you go, Thomas. Jesus Jesus isn't rejecting Thomas. He's moving to Thomas in his doubt. He wants Thomas. And friend, if you're doubting, you've got to hear that. That same Jesus is here. And he wants you. He wants to say to you, do not disbelieve anymore, but believe. And here's what I find amazing about this. You know, in the next verse, you don't even read that Thomas reaches out and touches him. It's almost as if all his proofs don't even matter anymore. 
He had specific requests. He doesn't do any of them. He's just so overcome now by the reality of the resurrection. But don't miss what comes out of this doubter's mouth. This is verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Now, don't miss that. You know why? Commentators tell us that that is the highest, clearest articulation of Jesus in all the Gospels. That nowhere in the pages of the Gospels did anyone pronounce with such clarity about who Jesus is except here in John 20. People have made all kinds of confessions about Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Holy One of God. No one had ever come outright and said, You're God. From the lips of the most famous doubter in the Bible comes one of the clearest professions of faith in Scripture. That ought to encourage us, brothers and sisters, that doubt, rather than destroying us, might actually be the path to strong faith. That rather than destroying us, on the other side of that doubt might be a stronger faith than you could have ever imagined. And perhaps God lets you go through the doubt to get you there. No one had articulated with such clarity what Thomas articulates here. My Lord and my God. And please pay attention to this too. This is not no cerebral, intellectual, philosophical confession. This is not I've weighed all the evidence and I am slightly more convinced. Do you see the words? My Lord. And my God. This is, this is not just, I believe Jesus died and rose again. The Bible says even the demons believe that. This is not no head knowledge. This is my Lord. My God. This is Him saying, this is my Jesus. Listen, the goal of this series for you is not in eight weeks to address your questions so that you might embrace theism. You know what? I'll I'll go so far as to say there might be a God. That matters nothing. The point is to come to where Thomas comes and says, Jesus is my Lord and my God. I'm not just agreeing with you. You know what? That there is a God makes more sense than that there's not. It's that I've come to see Him and know Him and have a relationship with Him to say He's my Jesus. He's my Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my God. I've come to see the nail-pierced hands and seen that that death was for me. And I've come to see in the empty tomb and realize that resurrection was for me. He is my Lord and my God. That's where the text wants to move you to today. If you're honest, you might just say, as we wrap up, you might say here, you know what? If I could just see what Thomas saw... I'd have no doubts either. I mean, are you really going to compare Thomas then to me now in 2014 in Philadelphia? If I had access to what Thomas has access to, I would have no doubts as well. If I could just see, then I'd believe also. I want you to hear this. Jesus had you in mind when he spoke to Thomas. You know how I know that? Because what he says to Thomas next. Listen to this. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you believe because you've seen me, that's great, but blessed 
are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Who are as sure of the resurrection as you are now without having seen me. You see, Thomas didn't believe the accounts of the apostles. The apostles had come and testified what they had seen and heard. Thomas wouldn't believe it. And Jesus is saying, do you know that there's going to be many, millions, who will believe the testimony of the apostles, including yours, Thomas, who won't have seen what you've seen, but will even believe your report of it. I can tell you that. You know why? History tells us that this same doubter traveled halfway around the world and landed on the shores of India. And I can tell you that generation after generation after generation who did not see what Thomas saw believed Thomas' account. I got my name that way. He believed one generation after another who had not seen believed Thomas' account. And Jesus was looking down the corridors of history and saying, Blessed are they who's going to believe your word even though you didn't believe. They haven't seen, but they will believe and they're blessed. Friends, that's us. That's who Jesus has in mind when he was talking to Thomas. Let me give you a verse from 1 Peter. And hear this. If you're in a season of doubt, hear this as encouragement for you. If you're seeking to show mercy to someone who has doubt, this is not my word. This isn't a Jay's thoughts. Hear from God for you this morning. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And listen to this in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know what Peter's saying? I know in this life you're going to have some trials. And for a little while you're going to go through some tests which are like gold in the fire going to refine you and your faith is better than gold. And it's going to last till the last day when Jesus appears. And Peter's saying to all of us, you know what, I know you don't see him, but I know you love him. And I know you don't now see him, but I know you believe in him. And I know when you sing, I've seen it said in my road. I've heard it said in my road. When you talk of Jesus, there is an inexpressible joy. Because you believe in him, though you don't see him. And on the other side of this faith is waiting the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Are you in doubt this morning? If you are, I would plead with you, look behind your doubts and see alternative beliefs. And say with Peter, where else should I go? You have the words of eternal life, and I have come to know and believe you are the Holy One of God. If you have doubts this morning, then don't hide them. But say honestly with the man in Mark 9, scream out to the Lord, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he will move towards you. Because what matters is not the measure of your faith, but the object of your faith. Weak or strong though it may right now be, is it in Jesus? Then it will hold. Are you in doubt? Then be encouraged. 
Because Jesus doesn't waste anything in the lives of his people. And that very doubt itself might be the path to a stronger faith than you'd ever imagined. On the other side of that doubt may be a greater certainty than you've ever known. I told you I was sitting in the office eight weeks ago. Looking back, even if I could, I would not change a thing. I wouldn't change the wrestling or the, the, the weeping or the angst or the pain of any of it. I wouldn't change a thing because I have this sense that God is strengthening the anemic parts of my faith. And I have a sense that he's bringing me to a greater certainty in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than I ever had before. So that you might know as Thomas did and say as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Listen, said my road, the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the dead. It is all true. And that's what we're going to spend the next 13 weeks thinking through. I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Our Father, we trust that you have engaged us and met us and your Holy Spirit can even now minister to us. There are many people in this room, but you know each one. And what a wonderful thought that is. You appear to the disciples, but you had heard Thomas's specific questions and moved right for him. It's an amazing thing that we don't get lost in the crowd when we're with you. And so even in this gathering this morning, you see every heart. You know every person and where they are. You know their questions. You know those around them. Move towards each one. And speak into each of our hearts as you did to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And move us from doubt to certainty and faith. Oh Lord, pray that we would be a merciful community to those who are in the thick of these things. And that we might have mercy on those who doubt. Come and give us in the coming season the certainty of your resurrection and all the joy and hope that that will bring. We pray these things in Jesus' name.